Welcome back to Tequila She Wrote, a podcast about cocktails and crime. I'm Sloan, your bartender for today, and I'm Trish, your crime tender for today. So grab a cocktail, buckle up for the Hot Mess Express. Toot toot! Beep beep! It's Sloan, your bartender for today, and we are making a redneck margarita, a podcaster's budget margarita, <laughs> a fancier mid-shelf margarita. You'll Whatever understand. you want to call it. <laughs> You'll understand in a minute. But I also wanted to go ahead and let you know that I do make these, we do make these drinks on TikTok. We also post a reel and a recipe card to Instagram, so feel free to find those there. It also cross-post on Twitter, Facebook. You can really just find us anywhere. Tequila she wrote for this recipe. But here's how I made my redneck margarita for today. I used one and a half ounces of Jose Cuervo. Typically, a top shelf will use Patreon. A Patreon. <laughs> We've been looking at Patreon stuff all night. Patron, Avion, anything. Anything that is from not the like top a shelf. bottom shelf tequila anything from the top shelf your your more expensive tequilas but we're using a cheaper tequila today and then so one and a half ounces of your choice of tequila a half ounce of triple sec or cointreau and then a half ounce of grand marnier and the grand marnier is what makes this elevated somewhat and then i did three ounces of margarita mix so you shake all of that over ice add it to your glass i love my margaritas with a salt rim do that or sugar whatever you prefer and that is how you make this redneck margarita. I hope you enjoy. And also remember that we post our uh, episodes every Tuesday and Friday. So come back and listen to us. All right. Well, I guess if we haven't already said it. Uh, <laughs> happy holidays, whether you celebrate Christmas or you don't. Um, and almost happy New Year's. I feel like it's been the longest two years. <laughs> it is what it is. <laughs> It is what it it's is. So bad. We're here to bring you terror in other ways, not the ways <laughs> that the real world brings you terror. Yeah. Hopefully it lets you get away from it a little bit. So today's episode, I've been going back and forth on what to call it because, I mean, it's it's a whole situation. situation in itself is the love triangle of Cynthia George and also the murder of Jeff Zach. So, I mean, and I found this, I was on, I was on good old Murderpedia, <laughs> your, your favorite website, Fitzgerald, if you they can't hear him, sometimes you can, okay, <laughs> if you heard that, that is Mr. Fitzgerald, the bear, <laughs> the bear that you cannot wrestle, because <laughs> <laughs> we're in Alabama, <laughs> but, um, yeah. It, like, I was on Murderpedia, and I was just kind of looking, like, Alabama and Ohio-wise, and I was just trying to see if anything struck, like, my fancy, and that, and I just happened to notice that Cynthia George is listed for Ohio, 
but in the victim count, it literally says zero. And I was like, how how can you be listed on Murderpedia, but like have, have zero, zero victims? Yeah. <laughs> so I dove in and then I found out this all takes place in good old Akron, Ohio. <laughs> Which, for me, is very close to home. I grew up in a little town called Louisville. And Akron is about 40 minutes away from where I grew up. Okay. Very close. My sister was going to go to the University of Akron. She was going to be a zip. It's kangaroo. Full circle. (laughs) And Cynthia was this beautiful woman. She was like a beauty queen she was trying to be a miss ohio or like was a miss ohio like the wording of it was very like i couldn't figure out if she like actually right was or if it was, if she was if crowned she was, or not yeah yeah so <laughs> cynthia first met her husband ed george while auditioning to be a dancer at akron's tanger nightclub which was a very well-known nightclub for the area. Like, if you're from the area or the surrounding area, you've you've probably heard of it. Mm-hmm. This all takes place back in, like, early 90s, 2000s. Okay. So, I graduated in 07. Yes, I'm old. But <laughs> I graduated then, so, like, I, I know the area. I didn't ever really venture out to Akron, but... Mm-hmm. Close enough. Yeah. Yeah. Ed was a multimillionaire that owned this club, and from the moment he laid eyes on Cynthia, he was smitten with her. Again, she's a former Miss Ohio, so she's clearly a very beautiful woman. beauty pageant queen. She has what's going to make someone go, ooh, let me get to know her, whether you have the personality or not. Stop dead in my tracks. (laughs) Cynthia grew up as a daughter of a poor coal miner and so she was very flattered by the attention that ed gave her because you know he was wealthy and he had status and that's not something she grew up with and that's a whole other thing to deal with whenever you're not used to it so i mean you're going from you have to think about every little thing (laughs) you do to suddenly you have someone that can literally provide whatever you want yeah uh the two were soon Married, they moved into the sprawling mansion. They were both practicing Catholics, so they decided, hey, why not? Let's start having kids. They had a total of seven children. (laughs) No, thank you. (laughs) I always say, you know, I'm the youngest of eight, but my parents were both married before and had three and then had two. So it's not like, yeah, we're the brave bunch that didn't stop. So (laughs) it's not like. My parents said, let's have eight kids together. Right. From the outside, their romance looks like your storybook, like fairy tale romance. And that, but as you dive into the story, you realize that our fairy tale loses its happy ending. As they usually do. So, several years into the marriage, Cynthia attracted the attention of a wealthy businessman at this club. His name was Jeff Zack. He was 44. He was a former Israeli paratrooper from Stowe, which I want to say Stowe is around like 
that area, but more closer to the Cleveland side. Mm -hmm. So it's a little more north from where I grew up. Cynthia at this time is in her late 30s. So they were closer in age than what um, Ed and her were. I believe I read like Ed was like 15 years her senior. So there was a, there was an age gap. So she started gaining attention from this younger man. So from what I read, she was a bit of a flirt. So she uh, flirted back and he struck up a conversation with Cynthia one night. And then he became friends with both of them. He became <laughs> friends with Ed and Cynthia. Awkward. And then it wasn't until like a little while later that the friendship between Jeff and Cynthia became more. And it started a 10-year relationship of them going behind Ed's back. A nanny for the Georges is quoted saying, I saw them kissing and sometimes he would come over and they'd just disappear. <laughs> so. Draw your own conclusions right? there. Um, the George children were frightened by Jeff and they... They never really spoke up about it, but one of the daughters said she always got a bad vibe from him. I've always said, if your kids don't like him, there's probably a reason behind this. Yes. Yes and no. Like, yes and There's no. some that are like, as a you're troubled not giving kid, me as much attention. <laughs> like, as a troubled kid myself, <laughs> it's not always true, but also, you know. Yes. You know. There's as a parent, you know. Like, and, like, from what I understand, the, like, the kids, like, were right to, like, get this bad vibe. Like I said, their relationship lasted for about 10 years, and as it got more and more into it, he became increasingly more abusive. Cynthia finally broke things off with Jeff in May 2001. And shortly afterwards, she caught the attention of another man named Jeff. No, Jeff. <laughs> Sorry. I was looking at, like, above. Uh, she caught the attention of another man named John Safino. So she has a thing for J's, too. Apparently. But also, Safino sounds like a gangster. Yeah. <laughs> Jeff became enraged that... When he found out that she was seeing someone else. You know, typical guy. How right. dare you not be happy with me and find somebody else. I can't be with you, but don't you be happy with somebody <laughs> right? else. On June 16th, 2001, Jeff Zach pulled into a gas station after going to BJ's Wholesale Club, which I don't know how far BJ's goes down, like, south and that but yeah. it's it's basically a costco or like a sam's club yeah he yeah he owned um like vending machines so he often went there to get product to restock his vending machines right makes sense yes so after he went to this uh wholesale place he went to a gas station to get some gas and while he was he pulled up Safino just happened to be waiting for him there. At this particular gas station. Whether it doesn't say whether he was followed there or if, like, maybe this was a stop he always made after going to this place and whatnot. But he was there waiting for him. 
And before Zach could even get out of his car, Safina walked up and shot him between the eyes. That escalated. Yes. I mean, I knew that's where we were headed, but yes, that escalated. So going back to just like this person being there waiting for him at the gas station, Safina was apparently dressed in all black. He drove what was described as a ninja style motorcycle with lime green trim. So (laughs) not very conspicuous, like at least make it all black. Yeah. Like, <laughs> so, um, apparently there was a gas attendant mm-hmm. that, like, was only, like, at the car right, like, in front or whatnot that witnessed the whole thing and was just so, like, taken aback that this had happened in front of them. Yeah. I would They didn't too. even know how to react. And apparently, um... John had turned even towards the gas attendant and like made contact, but they had he had his bicycle helmet on, so like you couldn't make out any features in that. So like they made eye contact in that, but he went away in that. So this attendant's like, Yeah, we made contact, but like I can't tell you anything other than they were in all black and they drove away on this motorcycle. On this inconspicuous motorcycle so like the attendant i can tell you about the bike but i can't tell you about the person yes so the attendant finally got like the nerve like back and called 911 but it was too late yeah um jeff was already dead at this point i mean you've been shot in the like in the head yeah it took a year for any arrest to be made in the meantime where am i in my notes i lost it <laughs> Aha, there we are in the meantime savino after he left this gas station drove over state lines to pennsylvania so he that he could establish his alibi and ditch the bike because apparently he had just bought this bike it was very inconspicuous so, yes he had just bought this bike so it wasn't like many people had seen him with this bike. To be able to be like, well, well you have a bike. Yeah. And, and so he was smart in some ways, except for the fact that he made a call while driving. <laughs> so that's a whole other thing I'll get into in a minute. <laughs> what an idiot. It only took a day for police to connect Jeff, Zach, and Cynthia George together. They also knew... That he was possibly the father of one of her children. Cynthia, however, already had a lawyer on standby ready to block any police inquiries. So. She knew what was up. (laughs) So tell me that you are not. (laughs) Tell me that you're guilty without telling me that you're guilty. They also connected Cynthia and Safino. But. He had an alibi of being at this car show in Pennsylvania. So, I mean. It's fake. It just, it, there was a lot of stuff that had this case stalled until Safino's wife, ex-wife, ex-wife, sorry, led to the breakdown of his alibi. And one of the reasons why it took, also took so long for them to, like, make arrest is... 
you know, Jeff wasn't, you know, just this good guy in that. He had enemies. He often fought, like, with his neighbors over, like, the littlest things. Mm. He was an unfaithful husband. A, a Kevin. Yes. A Karen male. A Kevin. So, like, he fought with his neighbors. He was an unfaithful husband. And he also was this businessman. And he was involved in some questionable dealings. So, like, it wasn't just like, oh, you were dating this man. Things went south. You're guilty. It was like, oh, there, there's some things here that, you know, could lead to other people. Right. But, like I said, we have John's lovely ex-wife that helps us unravel this case. She <laughs> happened to uh, talk to John, apparently, on this day, or, like, shortly after. And <laughs> he mentioned that, you know, he beat up this white-haired Israeli which was describing Zach to a T. <laughs> he was older. He had white hair. He took pride in his appearance and everything. And it wasn't until she later read or saw a news report about this white-haired Israeli being shot and killed at a gas station that she was like, Oh, hey. I know about that. So she reached back out to John where he said <laughs> uh, he said well let's just say the guy's going to have a hard time parting his hair from now on. <laughs> what an ass. <laughs> I was what like, an ass. I was like sir you're not helping yourself out at all. At all. At least, like, act if you're gonna try to pull this off, you've, like, gone to the extent of creating your own alibi. Like, at least don't incriminate yourself. <laughs> I was just like, oh, you idiot. <laughs> what an ass and what a dumbass. <laughs> uh, investigators then looked into Safino and discovered he had recently purchased the bike and the coincidences in this, like, alibi and everything just kept piling up. Um, apparently, his ex kind of kept in contact with him, and he started becoming paranoid. He thought she was wearing a wire, which she was, <laughs> to try to get him to, like, admit to it. But he never actually admitted directly to any of this. But he also told her over and over, don't talk to the police. Do not talk to the police. Right. So, why don't you want somebody to talk to the police? Unless you're guilty. Yes. Which you are. So, like I said, he blew apart his own alibi on his own, like, standings. Because he made a phone call to a friend who was basically his, like, alibi was like be like me be like sloan i'm gonna do this right. i need you to be my alibi like he made a friend to like a call to his friend while on his way to pennsylvania which 
put him instead of being like the in Pennsylvania in Pennsylvania, put him only forty minutes away from the crime scene <laughs> at the time, <laughs> instead of like two hours away. <laughs> what an idiot! Yes. So, yes, he eventually did go to the car show, but this was two hours later that he eventually right. showed up at the car show. <laughs> um. So, on September 25th, 2002, John Safino, who was 36 at the time, was arrested and charged with aggravated murder. And then it wasn't until February 26, 2003, so a couple months later, that the trial actually began. Assistant Summit County Prosecutor Michael Carroll tells the jury that Jeff Zach's love affair with Cynthia ultimately led to the murder. He said that their long affair ended in May 2001, and nine months later, she found Safino. Carol alleged that Zach was dissatisfied with the breakup and began to harass Ed and Cynthia, and also feud with Safino. And this led Safino's, like, plan to kill Zach. And so... The prosecutor basically said he was a part of this love triangle. He ended up on the bad side. Right. Wrong place, wrong time, wrong person. This was planned out. Please, please convict. Yeah. Like, he laid out, like, basically how he, which I guess opening statement, that's pretty much what your job is. You lay out how you're going to attack this. On May 7th, 2003, Cynthia was called to testify, but she invoked her Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. Oh, that looks good. Yeah. And also, I'm sure that John was just so so thrilled at the fact that this woman that claimed to love him didn't even want to try to help out here. Yeah. March 11th, 2003, the trial ends, and Safino's attorney says the the evidence against him is circumstantial, and Safino maintained his innocence. (laughs) Yeah. It only took jurors less than four hours to convict him. (laughs) I wonder why. Right? On March 17th, 2003, Safino was sentenced to life in prison, so he did not get the death penalty, which again, I feel is a much better sentence. It's a gray area. Yes. Police at first didn't say if Cynthia would be looked into as a person of interest or if she would even end up being arrested or charged with anything. It was just very much a gray area. Right. Like, they figured she was probably involved, but again, you don't have a lot of evidence it's kind of like in our fruitcake fraud episode yes. where, like, you couldn't really prove that Kay was involved. Yes. But, like, also... Couldn't prove, couldn't prove Pound Cake was involved. Pound Cake was involved. <laughs> oh. Pound Cake. <laughs> I'm never gonna live that down. <laughs> <laughs> never forget. Oh. All right. So, in so Cynthia is not looked at as we know, at least as what police are laying on. She's not looked at at all 
because there's not really evidence right point i mean that's not right but yes it's not right but like at the same time like the police were being smart they're like kind of letting her relax yeah and stuff um in november of 2004 a e released like an episode on their series american justice about zach's murder called who whacked zach (laughs) the episode focused on cynthia and questioned if more arrests would be made and prosecutors basically said there was a lack of evidence so they were at the same thing as like the police like right we know she's guilty but we We can't can't prove prove it. it yes so it wasn't until january 10th of 2005 meanwhile what we're talking let me find it up here 2001 was when he was killed so four years later cynthia george is finally arrested and charged with complicity and conspiracy to commit aggravated murder november 10th 2005 (laughs) Cynthia George has a five-attorney defense team that are all talking, like, with potential jurors for three days and decide she can't get a fair trial in Summit County. Fair. Which, true. I mean, true. Probably true. Definitely true. So, they opt to try the case before Judge Patricia A. Cosgrove. <laughs> You're welcome. (laughs) Um, But yeah, they, instead of having a jury, they just take it to a, like a judge for this judge to be the like one to decide everything. Um, On November 14th, the trial opens and the defense says George has no motive to kill Zach after breaking up with him. She broke up with him. That was it. She case closed. She had nothing else to do with him. Not case closed. Especially if you have a child that is possibly fathered by him. Yeah. Not <laughs> case closed. So, November 23rd, the testimony finally ends. And Ed George decides he's going to support his wife. He is <laughs> going to stand by her. She is not guilty. I need you to reevaluate <laughs> your life. The judge basically says she's going to deliberate over for the four-day Thanksgiving holiday and then deliver her verdict at 11 a.m. on November 28th. So, in the public, you have Ed saying, yes, I support you. But how much do you think he was actually supporting her during those four days? Probably not. Especially because you know all sorts of skeletons were probably pulled out of that closet. Yeah. <sighs> also, Ed's a very, like, prominent man in this area. He owns a very well, like, known nightclub restaurant thing. So, like, do you really want to look be looked at as this man that was cheated on? All this. So, I'm sure he was just trying to be like, yeah, I knew. I support my wife. <laughs> or something <laughs> like that. Either way, it's a lose-lose. Yes. So, on November 28th, the judge 
ends up acquitting George of conspiracy to commit aggravated murder, but still finds her guilty of compliancy to aggravated murder. So, basically, she says, I don't think you really conspired to this, but you also probably heard about it and were like, instead of being like, no, don't do that, you're just like, I mean, if you want to. (laughs) Do it. Yeah. Do it. So... Cynthia is also sentenced to life in prison without parole for at least 23 years. And as soon as this is sentenced, her attorneys promise to file an appeal. In December of 2005, an appeal is filed in the 9th District Court of Appeals. And on March 21st, 2007, in a 2-to-1 ruling... The Ninth District Court of Appeals says that there was insignificant evidence to convict, convict, sorry, to convict George, allowing her to go free. So, she was released. <laughs> she was released, and in August two thousand nine, not two thousand nine, August twenty ninth, two thousand seven, the Ohio Supreme Court. Declined to accept this appeal, but then, barring a reversal of its own decision, George was to remain free. And because it was appealed and then, like, rescinded and whatnot, she can't ever be charged with this again. Damn. So, basically, if you want her charged, you have to go through some loopholes. Right. So, that's exactly what the what the family of Jeff Zach did. They have since filed a wrongful death lawsuit against both Cynthia and John Safino. It is apparently still... I mean, that's really their only choice yes. at this point. From what I have seen, it is still yet to be tried. <laughs> Sorry, the boys are being very adamant that they want into our little small recording studio. (laughs) So like I said, um, because George cannot be tried again for, you know, her part in like the murder. She can't be tried for conspiracy of like planning this or like the complicity of it. The Zach family. smart woman. Yeah. The Zach family has to go around like this loophole and basically file a wrongful death lawsuit. But they don't just do it against Cynthia. They do it against Zafino. So it is still being kind of, I guess, trying that. Like I said, I couldn't find anywhere yet that it had been done, but also it very well could have been. And I just couldn't find it in like the time I was researching. Right. I haven't watched these yet, but I do plan on trying to find them, but there are many crime shows that have covered this case, such as Snapped, Killer Couples, and Dateline. So I do love a good Dateline. Yeah, so I'm definitely gonna have to look into this, whether they have it listed. I think most of them have it listed under Cynthia George, just because you know, she's this beauty queen that just got away with murder (laughs) yeah so 
I'm very interested to look into these and see if there's anything that, like, they go over that, like, the articles maybe didn't. Because right. I feel like sometimes the, even the little shows do, like, little things that well, the they articles get, like, won't go over. And they can get personal interviews with yes. people and stuff. So, we'll definitely look into those episodes. But that was a crazy case. <laughs> I said I was just kind of looking on Murderpedia and stumbled across it and saw the zero victims and I was like how do you have zero victims because you don't actually kill somebody you just conspire to kill somebody basically right right so well, yeah welcome back to your last call it's Sloan your bartender for today I found an article that I wanted to go over uh, the next episode is our New Year's episode, and we are doing a Prohibition episode, so I thought it would be interesting to do facts about the 1920s. I'm very intrigued with the 1920s, personally, like flappers and all that stuff, Great Gatsby. Yes. You are definitely 1920s. I am, I don't know why I'm so fascinated by, like, I guess, Victorian era, like... I do love the Victorian era, era too, like, Pride and Prejudice... Yes. Love it, but I do feel like I was also a flapper, maybe. I, I don't know. Anyways. Maybe. So, <laughs> random facts about the 1920s to hype you up for the next episode about Prohibition. Fact number one, speakeasies were not an invention of the 1920s. They actually started in the 1880s. Um, pretty much restaurants and stores that would serve alcohol for you to consume on the premises if they were not cleared to do so by the government. They would ask you to speak easy or keep everything on the DL. <laughs> Don't be a snitch. Don't be a snitch. Snitches get stitches. Amen. Fact number two, a green door meant a good time. So in the heart of, of a prohibition that, yeah. era, you would look for a green door because chances are if you saw a green door, they sold liquor behind it. I need to tell my parents. Get a green the, door. Screw the red door. We need a green door. <laughs> Number three is the government allowed medicinal medicinal alcohol. So like medicinal weed. Hey. hey. <laughs> a poorly, number four, a poorly done science experiment ended up saving millions of lives. So what would have netted him an F in biology class became one of the most important medical discoveries of the century. Oh. Alexander Fleming discovered that one of his staff culture plates developed mold that happened to prevent the growth of bacteria that mold would go on to save an estimate estimated 200 million lives oh ooh. number five brands brands all the brands wonder bread baby ruth candy bars kool-aid welch's grape reese's hostess cakes these all popped up in the 1920s when we couldn't have alcohol can't have alcohol so here's some sugar to help you out a lot of sugar to help you out <laughs> Number six, Wall Street was bombed and the perpetrators were never caught. Oh. I didn't know about this. On September 16th, 1920, someone piloted a horse-drawn carriage into, into the heart of Wall Street during lunch rush. Minutes later, it exploded, killing more than 30 people and injuring 300. I don't know who you are, but you killed some innocent animals and, and somewhat innocent people. To this day, the FBI have a guess on who it is, but the case was never proven who did it. Number seven, 
Thank the automobile for your next grilling sesh. Ford Motor Company produced Ford Charcoal. Yay. Leading to us grilling out every summer. Um, number eight, the birth of the work week. You can fuck all the way off. <laughs> Screw you. <laughs> I did kind of know about this. This is from Ford Motor Company. Um, they figured the 40-hour work week because nine hours a day, five days a week, the people on the line would get yeah. the most manual labor done that way in a constructive way. But, like, this is no longer conducive to our entire yeah it's economy or way of life or anything it it worked for the time it does not work anymore anyways number nine um hey stop sending your kids through the mill <laughs> it had to be said in 1920 it wasn't technically illegal to send your kids via the u.s postal <laughs> service <laughs> since postage was cheaper than a train ticket some some rural Americans took advantage and sent their children with the mailman to go see grandma. <laughs> no. I'm done with these kids. You take them. Oh. <laughs> Don't worry about a meal ticket. Don't worry about water. Just ship them off to grandma. Oh my god. <laughs> I wasn't ready for that. <laughs> Number 10, robots were invented. Well, the word was anyways. Czech, Czech writer Karel Kapek introduced the word to his play R.U.R. in which a factory produces synthetic humans who at first are happy to do the work for human beings. But later, their attitude shifts quickly and they revolt, destroying the human race. I wonder why! Because <laughs> human work sucks. <laughs> Number 11, the greatest thing since question mark wonder what, what did they say before 1928 that was the year that a missouri baker used otto frederick rowwetter's new invention to sell pre-sliced bread loaves hey <laughs> the funny thing is is that they didn't sell it first because they were viewed as sloppy <laughs> <laughs> don't tell me what sliced bread i'm supposed <laughs> to have <laughs> oh, number 12 flagpole sitting no thank you <laughs> No, thank you. If you thought planking was weird, in the 1920s, they did something just as crazy. They would sit on top of flagpoles. No. No. No, thank (laughs) you. No. I actually had a funny news story set aside as well, but it was about a cat that got rescued in Colorado, and he was stuck on top of an electric pole for, like, three days. And the neighbors and his owners, like, everybody kept trying to coax him down, but he, he wouldn't come down. So they had to call call the firemen. And the firemen got him down. Well, my cat that doesn't even climb trees climbed a tree and then he got up there and was like, what do I do? do?" And he just let go. And I'm literally seeing this cat that I know has never climbed this high in his life free fall to the ground. And he even stunned himself when he landed on his feet. And I was just like, I saw years of my life flash before my eyes because this cat's like 14 years old. He's got nine lives. Oh. It's fun. It's fun. Number 13, jail for sale. Some people were convinced that prohibition, quote unquote, the noble experiment, would work so well that crime would all but disappear. So towns across the U.S. try to sell their jail houses. But not only did crime increase during prohibition, 
The criminals themselves sometimes rose to a celebrity status of infamy. <laughs> Al Capone. Al Capone. <laughs> Number 14, scandalous. Warren G. Harding's presidency marked a return of business-forward policies at the federal level not seen since the Gilded Era of the late 19th century. However, the Harding presidency was marred by scandals, one of which led the first cabinet member ever sent to prison for a year on charges of accepting bribes <laughs> from an oil company. I mean, imagine now, though, if that was still, like, practiced. <laughs> you would be dead. <laughs> You'd be in jail for sure. Well, no, we not We would for not sure. have Congress. Not for sure. 15. Radio was born in Pennsylvania. Pittsburgh's KDKA became the first yeah. commercial radio station in the U.S. in 1920. Three years later, there were more than 500 radio stations across the country. Number 16, jazz and radio, the next big music style. African-American musicians migrated north to larger cities like New York and Chicago to escape the pervasive racism of the South and brought jazz with them. I do love some good jazz. Yeah. Born and raised in Mississippi. Love some good jazz. Number 17, Art Deco comes to the U.S. It became a dominant style after being prominent in Europe. I am not an Art Deco person, but... We do have the 1920s to thank for the Hollywood sign. Hey! It also started out saying Hollywood Land. That would cost a grand total of $21,000. Once again, I don't know what that translates to today. Yeah. But that's a lot of money. He really only meant for it to stay for over a year. And the Great Depression saw the sign deteriorate, but it was restored in the late 1940s without the land. And that's how we have the infamous Hollywood. Uh, Fact number 19, we had our first movie stars in the 1920s. It was when we first got our motion pictures, but they were also the silent motion pictures. Yes. And last but not least, the most important, we have Mickey Mouse. Thank you, 1920s, for bringing us a horrible prohibition phase, but also bringing us Mickey. My sister's favorite Disney character. Just Disney and period, though. I mean, yes. Because Disney, all of Disney would not have happened without Mickey. Becky's favorite Disney character is Mickey. Shout out to Becky. (laughs) I'm an Eeyore person, but I mean, I like other ones too, but Eeyore. I don't know what that says about me, but Eeyore is my favorite character. Belle is my favorite. I love her. Yeah. But But. anyways, that was a great episode, a great case. Yeah. And we appreciate you hanging out with us. Preview into our uh, next, what? Not next next episode, but like our New Year's episode. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for hanging out with us today. As always, remember to subscribe, rate, review, leave a comment. Yep. Um, All of our socials are Tequila She Wrote. We also have an email address at tequilashewrote at gmail.com. If you have any questions, any requests, any cocktail recipes for us to try, hit us up. And thanks for hanging out with us. See you next time. See ya. Yeah. Bye.